Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are going to be covering 1 Corinthians chapters 8 through 13. And most of those are little individual, little answers to different questions. They're just different subjects. They really don't have a theme that flows through them. So we're going to tackle them chapter by chapter. Now, the first question, 1 Corinthians chapter 8, clearly he was asked a question, is it okay to eat meat that my neighbor sacrificed to his pagan god? So my neighbor's the pagan, my neighbor is the one that's worshiping the pagan god, and he's having a little sacrifice to it, and then he invited me over to eat the meat. Now, that was kind of customary in the Jews that they would offer a sacrifice and take the meat home, and you could very legitimately invite your neighbors over to participate with you. So that's not an unheard of practice, even among the Jews, that you would invite your neighbors over to feast upon a meal that you sacrificed to your God. But the question is, can I eat the meat that my neighbor sacrificed to his pagan god, not to Jehovah, not to the God of the Old Testament, but to his pagan god, am I corrupting myself if I eat my neighbor's meat? That's the question they asked Paul. Now, there's two levels here. Mike's going to take a look at that level, the, the eating of the meat sacrificed to the idol of my neighbor. And then what I'd like to do is talk about kind of a deeper principle of the gospel, that I am responsible for what my neighbor does who watches me do something and might get the wrong impression. Now, most Jews really took a great effort to avoid food that had been consecrated to idols. There were many debates in Paul's day. Many Palestinian Jewish teachers debated what to do in the cases of uncertainty. For example, they even had strict rules about, do I eat food that has not been tithed? And a non-Jewish person would not tithe their food. And that seems strange to us. You know, I'm not going to eat food that hasn't been tithed. But that really was a debate that they had in Paul's day. And so they really did take great pains to avoid eating that food. And many self-respecting Jews in Paul's day would have never taken a chance on food that might have been offered to an idol. If there was even a chance that that meat had been offered to an idol, they would not even partake of it. They believed that they were compromised when they went to a feast offered by somebody who wasn't Jewish. Let's say somebody was having a banquet for their son and they went to this. And so to avoid being compromised, some Jews actually brought their own food to the banquet. Now, can you imagine how awkward you would feel? I'm invited to Bryce's house. Bryce is having a feast for his son. Maybe his son has a great moment in his life. Maybe his son's getting married, or maybe his son is returning from war, and there's a banquet, and I come and I bring my own food. I mean, you can just imagine how that would cause problems uh, socially. And so the question that they had is, okay, what do we do with this? And that's really what he says in verse 1, where he says, as touching things offered to idols, now we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Now we're going to end this podcast talking about that idea of charity or agape. That's the word that's used in the Greek. It literally just means love. But the people translating the, the Bible 
seeing all the different distinctions that the Greek uses for the word love. Use that word charity to define agape. It's a kind of love that's a higher form of love that we'll talk about at the end of this podcast. But essentially, their idea was this, that the weak people among them would have the hardest time with this. And what does that mean? I think sometimes we think that it means weak in the faith. And I think that can be read this way. For example, if I'm eating meat that's been sacrificed to Mithras, and my Christian neighbor sees me doing this, they might be thinking, well, Mike, are you advocating this? Are you saying that Mithras is okay? I like that reading, but I think another reading is this. The people who were more wealthy in Paul's day are going to be called those that are strong, and those who are of a socially lower class, they, ha- they have less money, those individuals who are from a lower socioeconomic status would be those who are weak in the sense of they don't have the ability to purchase meat. Remember, meat wasn't something that everyone got to eat. It was kind of expensive. And so the wealthier classes ate meat more often than those that were from a lower socioeconomic group. In fact, those people probably only ate meat if they were invited to a banquet. And so that's kind of the backstory to this chapter. And Paul is essentially giving counsel to the saints, especially to those that are strong, meaning those that have more access to meat. He's answering the question, what do you do? What do you do if you go to a banquet and there's food that's been offered to an idol? And that counsel is deeper and broader than just that question. Paul's addressing something in their time and space, but as modern readers of the text, we can take this advice in this setting, in that time, in that setting, and we can apply it to our life and use it to follow Christ in greater ways and be better Christians. Yeah, the simple answer in Paul's day is, you're fine. And verse 8, meat commendeth us not to God, for neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are the, we the worse. So the simple answer is, yes, you're fine. You can eat the meat sacrificed to an idol, and you haven't corrupted anything. You haven't violated any commandments. Notice the very next word. So verse 8, meat commendeth us not unto God. But there's a deeper issue here. And the principle, the higher thinking the higher principles of the gospel are that I am responsible for my neighbor, and I am responsible for misunderstandings that I might cause inside my neighbor's heart and mind. So Paul's caution here, he says, verse 9, take heed lest by any means this liberty of yours become a stumbling block to them that are weak. For if any man see you which has knowledge Sitting at meat in the idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And if you do that, you sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience. In other words, imagine I know the doctrine that Paul just taught, that I'm not doing anything wrong by eating the meat, and I was just invited over to my neighbor. I just, I'm trying to be friendly. My neighbor and I have a good relationship. He's invited me over to something that's important to him, and I want to support him, so I go. Now, I know I'm not doing something wrong. I know that I'm not worshiping the idol. But what if someone were to walk by and see me and say, oh my goodness, I listened to his podcast. I've listened to his podcast for, for years, and he's over there worshiping the idol. And what if that person was just kind of on the fringe a little bit of, of maybe their covenants, and they saw me eating meat 
to an idol, and because of my example, they go out and worship the idol. Now, I wasn't worshiping the idol. I was just supporting my neighbor, but the misunderstanding that this person had because of my example, I have some accountability for, and that's the deeper doctrine. And a lot of people may push back and say, look, I don't care what other people think. And there's some truth to that. I understand that. But the disciple of Christ is willing to say, I will accept the responsibility if my example might lead someone astray. I'm going to be careful. I think that's the deeper principle here. So Paul says in verse 13, if meat make my brother to offend... I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. So I'm going to be careful that I do what's right. There's a disciple's attitude here that I could say, look, I'm not doing anything wrong and I don't care what you think, versus I can see that someone might get the wrong impression, so I'm going to be cautious. I'm going to be careful that I don't lead someone else astray. So I really like, Bryce, that main word about stumbling block in verse 9, where he says, take heed that this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to them that are weak. And I really do read the weak as those who don't have access to meat. And so the social distinction here between the wealthy and the less well-off is a big deal. But I also like the other reading that sometimes has been given about those that maybe are weak in the faith. Either way, we need to be careful to not be putting up stumbling blocks, right? Yep. So just, I would invite all of us to ask ourselves, am I doing something that I know I'm not doing the wrong, I'm, do, I'm in the right, but someone might see it and perceive that I'm in the wrong and then be encouraged to do the wrong because of my example. I love this statement from President Joseph F. Smith, sixth president of the church. He said, I believe in obeying the commandments of God or else get out of the way. We ought not to be stumbling blocks to those who are trying to enter in at the door. God will hold us responsible for this. If there is a man on earth that has done wrong because I have set him the example, I am in some measure responsible for that wrong, and I will have to pay the debt in some way. Now, again, I know that's a higher level principle thinking. I invite you to have a disciple's attitude and say, can I be a little bit more cautious in setting a good example to those who might misinterpret what I'm doing? and be encouraged to do something wrong. 1 Corinthians 9 talks about the concept of Christian liberty and its limitations. In 1 Corinthians 9, the concept of freedom is discussed by Paul. Philosophers of Paul's day understood freedom as being liberated from false values, also being free from material possessions and being self-sufficient. There's lots of discussion in the literature in the first few centuries, especially by the Stoics, about what it means to be free. And we actually put some of this stuff in the show notes if that interests you. I think Paul's quoting these guys. I think he knows 
how the Stoics thought. And I think he's going to use that concept of freedom and inject it into his discussion about what it means to be an apostle. One of the things that the Stoics taught, many of them, is that they were unconcerned about what other people thought of them. And that kind of ties into what we've just been talking about in chapter 8. On one hand, we need to be free of others' opinions, but on the other hand, we need to be careful. So this notion of freedom that Paul's going to talk about is going to be linked closely with his idea of what it means to have authority and what it means to have rights. And Paul is acknowledging that the Corinthians understand this idea of freedom, and he's also urging them, even though they're free, to exercise restraint. So it's kind of like this tension between two contraries, as it were. And so he calls his readers to limit their freedom just as he himself sacrifices his own rights for the sake of the gospel, but he's also acknowledging that he has freedom. Some of these verses in 1 Corinthians 9 can be kind of confusing. So we're going to talk about some of them. Look in verse 1, how he starts off. He says, am I not an apostle? Am I not free? And then he says, have I not seen Jesus Christ our Lord? Remember, when Paul talks about his authority, he's going to tie that into his vision that he had on the road to Damascus, that he was called to be a witness of Christ because Christ told him to do so personally, and he has personally seen Jesus. In these verses where he's talking about being free, I believe that that is tied into the Greek idea of being free from needing money or from needing the goods of the world, being above this. Uh, The term I used with some of my friends, do you ever hear the phrase off the grid? There are those in today's society that look at being free as being completely self-sufficient, independent. What if you could live in such a way where you could produce your own power and your own food and you had sufficient for your needs that you didn't even need other people? Now, many of the Stoics in Paul's day had that view. Being free for them was not just about being materially free, but also being free of the opinions of others. Even if everyone said you were wrong, some of the Stoic philosophers, their idea was essentially, if everybody says I'm wrong, but I know in my head that I'm right and that I'm pursuing virtue, I am free from their opinion. And so in this setting, Paul's going to tie this into finances and his right to be supported financially for his ministry. Paul explains that as an apostle and preacher of the gospel, he has the right to receive compensation for his work, just like the other apostles and believers who were being supported in this time by the churches that they served. And so Paul provides examples from everyday life to kind of illustrate his point. He's going to talk about a soldier that gets wages and a farmer who gets to eat the fruit of his labor to support his argument. Look in 1 Corinthians 9, verse 7 and 8. Who goes to warfare anytime at his own charges? Who plants a vineyard and doesn't eat of the fruit thereof? Or who feeds a flock and eateth not of the milk of the flock? Say I these things as a man, or saith not the law the same also? Look what Paul says in verse 9. For it is written in the law of Moses, Thou shalt not muzzle the mouth of the ox that treadeth out the corn. Does God not take care of the oxen? That form of argument was used often in Paul's day, where you would give an example, and then the question is, how much more greater is this than this? Would you not feed your ox for doing work? And then by implication, he's saying, well, isn't a man greater than an ox? In other words, 
because Paul is preaching the gospel and he's doing all this work, one of his justifications is, I should probably be compensated for this work. Now, even though he's justifying that, yes, he should be compensated, look what he says towards the end of the chapter. In verse 18, he says, what is my reward then? And that word mistros means like wages or compensation. Verily, when I preach the gospel, I may make the gospel of Christ without charge, that I abuse not my power in the gospel. Um, without charge, that, that word just means without expense. In other words, he's saying, even though I'm justified in getting paid, I'm not doing that. I'm not getting uh, compensated. And then he says, for though I be free from all men, yet have I made myself servant unto all that I may gain the more. The way I read that is Paul is essentially saying, it really isn't about money, but I don't want anybody to be confused. If I go and I get compensated for my preaching, I should, but his concern is, verse 19, I'm worried about how people will view that, and that worry, even though he's justified in it, causes him to say, okay, I'm not going to do that. In other words, he's doing what he just taught in chapter 8. I could be compensated for this, but I don't want my brother to stumble over that, therefore I won't be. He's giving his own personal life example of what he just taught in chapter 8. The other thing I love in chapter 9, Mike, is since he's talking about him preaching and him in that role of being a missionary and a minister and a preacher, I think there's some great little tidbits for all of us here on how to preach the gospel. I think there's two that I would emphasize. If you want to be an effective minister, uh, teacher, missionary in the gospel, I think there's a couple rules here to follow. Rule number one in verse 14 Paul says, even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. We will be far more effective teachers and ministers and leaders and missionaries if they see in us an example of living the very truths we're teaching. Now, no one's perfect, and I love that Elder Holland made the comment once that I follow my own teachings a great distance crawling. But the idea here is they need to see in me an example of gospel living. I gain more power by living the truth than anything else I can do. My words will lose their power if I am not an example of the very things I'm trying to teach. So number one, live the gospel. But then number two, I remind you that Ammon saw an opportunity to win the heart of the king. Ammon said, when I win his heart, then will he believe my words. And so I love what Paul does in 20 through 22. I know that I need to live the gospel, but I also need know that I need to connect with you. I need to win your heart, that you will be more likely to believe my gospel message when you and I have connected in a way that is personal. And then another one, to them that are under the law— I became as under the law that I might gain them that are under the law. And then to them that are without the law, I kind of acted in a way that was appropriate for me as without law, so that I might gain them that are without the law. To the weak became I weak that I might gain the weak. I made all things to all men that I by all means save some. In other words, I connected with them at their level. It's almost as if I kind of became one of them to connect with them so that I could then share my message 
and save them. That's a brilliant secret. If you're a teacher in this church or if you're a leader in this church, you need to connect with your group. You need to kind of become one of them. Now, I don't think what he's saying is be childish and immature if you're teaching a group of childish, immature teenagers. But what he is saying is get into that world. Know the things that they deal with. Understand their world so you can speak about it in a way that resonates with them and connects with them. And then you can help them understand how the principles of the gospel are going to change their lives. To the Jews, I became a Jew that I might gain the Jews. You know, Bryce, it kind of reminds me of Ferris Bueller when there's the secretary that talks about him and she says, you know, the skaters love him and the jocks love him and the dweebs and the motorheads and the cheerleaders. And then she pauses and she says, Ferris Bueller is one righteous dude. And I really think that's really what Paul is expressing here is his goal to be the Ferris Bueller of the ancient world. The slaves that had joined the church, he relates with them and he preaches on their level. To the wealthy, he can speak their language. He can speak the the language of living in the Roman Empire as a Roman citizen all the way to the most disenfranchised people, to the most pious Jews, to the most pagan of all the people in the ancient world. In fact, we talked about this in another podcast. He even wanted to go as far as Spain, far away from where anyone knew Torah, because he wanted to preach Christ to everyone. And I really think that's the spirit of being a missionary. You just love everyone. And if you have to pick up a language, you're sent somewhere where you're like, I don't know the language. The Lord says, well, learn it. Why? Look at the end of verse 19, that I might gain the more. Or at the end of verse 22, where he says that I might by all means save some. I really like that. Now, another thing in here that can be kind of tricky are these verses in 12, 13, 14, and 15. I'm just going to read the verses here briefly. Verse 12 reads, if others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that they which minister about holy things live of the things of the temple, and they that wait at the altar are partakers with the altar? Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. But I have used none of these things, neither have I written these things, that it should be so done unto me, for it were better for me to die than that any man should make my glorying void. For though I preach the gospel, I have nothing to glory of. For necessity is laid upon me, yea, woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel. Now, I'll tell you, these can be kind of confusing. I mean, you, you can read this and go, okay, Paul, um, what are you saying here? So there, here's another translation of verses 11 and 12. If we have sown unto you spiritual things, is it a great thing if we shall reap your carnal things? If others be partakers of this power over you, are not we rather? Nevertheless, we have not used this power, but suffer all things, lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Now, if you look previously to verses 11 and 12, those are the verses where Paul is justifying being paid for the ministry. So my reading of verse 11 and 12 is this. Essentially, I don't want to hinder my preaching, even though I'm justified in receiving confidence compensation for preaching the gospel, I'm not going to receive it. But then he says, even those that worked in the temple, verse 13, were able to be fed from that which is offered to the temple. If I were to bring a sacrifice to the temple in the ancient world, 
the priests would actually keep the hides of the animal. The hides of the animal would be used as compensation for them working in the temple, and they would also be able to partake of some of the meat. And Paul's saying, well, they did it. But then he says, you know, I'm not here to do this. I have nothing to glory of. I think, in essence, Paul is using Matthew 10.10 and Luke 10.7 in the context of this conversation, and those are verses where the Savior says that the laborer is worthy of his hire, and that is where he tells the apostles, hey, go out into the world, don't take purse or scrip, meaning don't take your visa with you, go out and preach, and the people that you teach and feel the Holy Ghost, they will feed you, they will take care of you, and that was what they did, and Paul's kind of citing that. And he's saying, I I could do that, but I'm not going to do that in this instance. Now, modern apostles have also discussed this. One of them said this, the ministers of salvation must eat and drink. They must be clothed. They must marry, raise families, and live as other men do. When all of their time and strength is expended in building up the kingdom, others, happily, those blessed by their ministry, must supply the just needs and wants of the laborers in the vineyard, for the laborer is worthy of his hire. But then Elder McConkie warns, but the laborer in Zion shall labor for Zion, for if they labor for money, they shall perish. I really like that. Now, at the end of chapter 9, Paul's talking about a couple things. Uh, One of them is running a race, and the other one is being involved in a boxing match. And he's likening this to living the gospel and being on a mission or being a, a minister of Christ. And he's using this to convey that it's really difficult. It's like a challenge. To be a really good racer or a boxer is kind of a challenge, and that's kind of what it's like to be a missionary. And he highlights it by talking about how exclusive the prize is that you would receive if you won. In Corinth, they did host games every two years, and they they had the Olympics every four years, but in Corinth, every couple years, they would have games, and, and the athletes would receive a reward. And so Paul is going to use that understanding of the games and extend this as an analogy in his own life, and he's going to use it to underscore the need for personal discipline to prepare to work in the ministry. You might wonder what's going on with verse 26, where he says, So therefore I run, not as uncertainly, so I fight, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it unto subjection. I think what he's saying in 26 is this. um, If I shadow box, if I'm just like standing in front of the mirror and I'm like acting like I'm boxing, he's like, bro, that's not going to work. If you think you can shadow box and then get in the ring with Mike Tyson, uh, or Pacquiao, good luck. The only way you're going to be able to survive in that ring is you got to put in real work. And so uh, boxing the air isn't going to cut it, buddy. So Paul, once again, is speaking their language. He says, every, this is verse 25, he says, every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things, and they do it to obtain a corruptible crown. And they did. They would get like a garland or a wreath that would be corruptible. But then notice what Paul says, but we are going after that which is incorruptible. Okay, 10. As we move into 10, I just want to continue a list that began weeks ago in Come, Follow Me. As Jesus gathered his disciples at the Last Supper, he instituted the sacrament. Now, he made it very clear, and Mike and I talked about this in our podcast, that perhaps the most important word associated with the sacrament is to remember. Do you remember how there was a JST change in Matthew and Mark that added the word remember? 
But Luke uses the word remember, and there was no JST change. So one clear purpose of the sacrament is that we remember him. I love that in the JST of Mark's version, he says, remember me in this hour that I was with you. That's clearly one purpose of the sacrament is to remember. Now, if we look at the sacrament prayers that we utter today, you hear in the sacrament prayer another reason why we partake of the sacrament. You'll recognize the phrase, and witness unto thee. When I partake of the bread, I witness unto the Father that I am willing to, and then it lists three commandments. When I partake of the, the water, I witness unto the Father that I do always remember him. So another reason to partake of the sacrament is to witness that we will obey. I partake of the sacrament as a witness unto God that I'm going to be obedient. Now in 1 Corinthians 10 and 11, Paul gives us three more that I think are worth mentioning this week. They're not necessarily the main subject of his discussion, but they come out clearly on our list of why do we partake of the sacrament. The first one is in chapter 10. He says in verse 16, the cup of blessing which we bless. Is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that bread. In other words, we partake of the sacrament to be part of something big, to be part of a group. We partake of the sacrament in that one meeting where we all come together in our sacrament meeting. We partake of the sacrament to be one group, united in heart, united in purpose, to come together in communion. That word communion kind of is symbolized by the bread, right? It starts out as one loaf of bread that gets divided amongst us, but collectively, we are all one loaf of bread. So another reason we partake of the sacrament is that sense of community, that sense of being part of each other, a collective group. We are the body of the saints, and collectively, we are one. I mean, that really is koinonia, which is in communion, we're in fellowship, joint yep. participation. It's a beautiful image. Yep. That leads us to another one. Jump over to chapter 11. Now, we'll dive into chapter 11, the beginning part, in just a moment. But towards the end of chapter 11, he again is addressing why we partake of the sacrament, starting in verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he brake it and said, Take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. So there's the number one on our list. After the same manner he took the cup, when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament of my blood, this do ye, as oft as ye drink it, in remembrance of me. So there's Paul's reminding, we partake of the sacrament to remember. But then in verse 26, he says, For as oft as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do shew the Lord's death till he come. 
In other words, I lift up that bread and partake of it, and I drink that cup as a testimony. I testify of Jesus. Partaking of the sacrament is a way I bear my testimony. I proclaim that he came, he lived, he died, and he was resurrected. I testify of him by partaking of the bread and drinking of the cup. I do shew him. I testify of Jesus. And now one more, verse 28. And I know I do this. I'm positive you do this. The sacrament is a moment to reflect on where I am and what I've done and that I need to get a little bit better. If I'm promising to be better, doesn't it require a moment of self-reflection to say, what are the things I need to work on? If we're renewing our covenants in the sacrament, don't you pause and think about the things that need to be changed and improved? And so Paul says, verse 28, but let a man examine himself. So let him eat of that bread and drink of that cup. Now listen to the promise. Verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not need to be judged. And I wouldn't take that out of context, but the idea here is there will be less of a need of final judgment if I have been having that judgment with myself and the Lord every single Sunday throughout my entire life. I won't need one final judgment at the end. Because every sacrament meeting has been a mini judgment where I counsel with the Lord and say, what am I doing wrong that needs to be improved? If you judge yourself weekly, there will be much less of a need to be judged. And so verse 28, let us examine ourselves. And so let him eat that bread and drink of that cup. So a fifth purpose of the sacrament is that it is an opportunity for self-examination and self-judgment and a moment to say, I'm going to do better. You take inventory of your life a little bit and you make a mental note of the things that need to be improved. If the bread is being broken, it is a marvelous opportunity to ask yourself, what in my life needs to be broken and discarded? So those are five wonderful reasons to partake of the sacrament. Number one, to remember him. Number two, to witness that I'm going to be obedient. Number three, we're all in this together. We are one loaf of bread. Number four, I testify of Jesus. I proclaim that he came, he lived, he died, and he was resurrected. And number five, I'm going to take a moment and examine my life and what things need to be improved and covenant to do better this week. Those are some wonderful reasons why we partake of the sacrament. Just wanted to point them out as Paul teaches them in 10 and 11. Bryce, since you're talking about sacrament here in 1 Corinthians 11, I think maybe I'll just interject here a little bit about some correction he's giving them as well. 
So if you look in 11, verse 18, he says, first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there's divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must also be heresies among you, that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. I think one of the heresies, and it depends on you know how you read the text, but I think one of the heresies or one of the divisions that he's going to identify here has to do with the sacrament. Look what he says. Verse 21, in eating, everyone takes before his own supper. That word other is an italic, so that's, that's the King James translators trying to fit the Greek to make more sense in the English. But in the literal reading of verse 21, we have, for in eating, everyone taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. Verse 22, what? Do you not have houses to eat in and drink in? And then he says, or despise ye the church of God and shame them which have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise not. And then skip over to verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. For if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation. And the rest I will set in order when I come. So Paul says there's other things you guys have issues with, but... I'm not going to talk about that right now in this letter. I'm going to talk about that when I get among you, and I can talk to you in person, but I can address this in the letter. And the issue seems to be this. There was a disparity in Corinth. Remember, a lot of people are wealthy, but there's a lot of people that are poor. And some of the early Christian saints that lived in Corinth were a part of the douloi, or the, the group of slaves. And the slaves would have to work well into the night. After sundown, they would work. And the early church met together in house churches. And so we would go to Bryce's house or whoever's house. Sometimes there were faithful and wealthy patrons that would bring people together and we would eat in their home. And there were different rooms where you would have a, a distinction made. Maybe the more wealthier people would go in one room. Uh, sometimes it was called the triclinium. It would be like the best room where a small group of people could eat. And they would get together and have a feast and they would talk about Jesus the Lord's Supper involved actually eating a meal. I think what's going on in 1 Corinthians 11 is Paul's acknowledging, hey, we're not just eating a, a piece of bread, we're literally having a feast. And the poorer class of Christians, those that were from a lower socioeconomic status, couldn't get there right when it started, and they would get there later, and the good food would be gone when they got there. And so that's what I think is going on in verse 21, where he says, For in eating, everyone taketh before his own supper, and one is hungry. And then he says in verse 22, Have you not houses to eat and drink in? I think what he's encouraging the more wealthier saints uh, to do is, if you're going to go to the Lord's Supper and you think you're going to eat a lot, eat before you go, so that there's food left over for those that have less than you. And that's kind of what he's saying in verse 33, where he says, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. And I think the overarching principle is this idea of we need to be considerate of other people. And that's a problem. It seems to be a division, verse 18, among them. And Paul says, that's not cool. We've got to fix this. Uh, we need to treat each other the way Jesus would treat them. And what would Jesus do? He wouldn't take the best seat in the house, and he would certainly wait till everyone got there. So I know we just talked about sacrament at the end of 11, but go back to the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10. 
1 Corinthians 10 can be divided a couple different ways. The first five verses, Paul's going to caution his readers not to be like ancient Israel. And then in 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11, he's going to give lessons from Israel's history and talk about their idolatrous practices. And then in verses 12 through 22, he's going to warn against idolatry and participating in the Lord's table and idolatrous feasts. We're going to kind of have some of that same conversation that we had in the eighth chapter. And then at the end of 1 Corinthians 10, verses 23 through 33, he's going to issue the call to glorify God in all things and to seek the good of others. There's a lot going on in 10. But at the beginning of 10, I, I, I want to just draw this out. This is not the main thing, but I think this is really kind of cool to show us how Paul's reading the scriptures. In the first 10 verses or so of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is encouraging his readers to not be like ancient Israel. And he talks about them crossing through the Red Sea. And he talks about in verse 3, he says they did eat the same spiritual meat. And then in verse 4, he says they did all drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them, and that rock was Christ. There was a tradition amongst the rabbis as they were analyzing the text of the Old Testament. One of the questions that they had was how did the Israelites partake of water for all those years in the wilderness? It's a desert. And as they developed Midrash and as they as they developed commentary, Midrash is kind of this idea where we're wrestling with the text and we're making commentaries on the text, uh, many rabbis came to the conclusion, and it developed into a rabbinical tradition, that the rock that Moses smote in the wilderness, where the water gushed forth, that that rock actually traveled with the Israelites in the wilderness. Now, if you're interested, we put some of these quotes and these ideas in the show notes with lots of uh, resources for you to go and look. One of the great commentators, James Kugel, wrote a book called How to Read the Bible, and we cite some of his stuff in there as well to kind of back up this idea, this claim that Paul understood the rabbinic tradition, and his assumption is that his readers know this rabbinic tradition. So in other words, these people in Corinth, at least many of them, understood what Paul's saying in verse 4. And they probably nodded their head and thought, oh yeah, I remember that rock that followed them. They knew the Midrash, they knew the rabbinic tradition. And then Paul is adding his own touch to the Midrash. And he's saying that that rock that followed them was Jesus. The water that came from the rock was Jesus. That's Paul reading on top of the layer of the rabbinic Midrash, on top of the text. So we have layers of tradition, starting with the text, however that came to be, and then the rabbinic tradition on top of it. And then we have Paul's interpretation of that layer of textual tradition. And his point is that that rock is Jesus Christ. And that's, once again, how the New Testament authors and readers and apostles and teachers read the Old Testament. They were always rereading it, and they saw Jesus in the text. And so that's really fun. It's kind of neat to see these little breadcrumbs in the text showing us how Paul interpreted Scripture. Now that leads us to chapter 11, the beginning part, which is one of the most difficult passages in the New Testament and has caused a lot of concern and caused people to take offense. Now, I don't know what Paul was trying to say about his day and age. I'm going to leave that to Mike to interpret in just a moment. But being a pattern hunter, I find patterns all over the gospel of what is being said in chapter 11. So let me separate this discussion into two things. What did Paul mean in his day? And how do I read the words in my day? How might I make sense of chapter 11 where women should cover their heads but men shouldn't? 
How do I not be offended by that? How do I make sense of that? And the only way I make sense of that, to me, this is a beautiful doctrine if I understand the symbolism that is taught in numerous places in the Scriptures. So look for a pattern that I see here in chapter 11, and that is how many times has Jesus portrayed that the church is his bride? that he is the groom and the church is the bride. That's a very common theme all the way back to the Old Testament. When Hosea was asked to go marry a prostitute as the prophet, that's the symbol that the faithful husband, the prophet symbolizing Christ, is married to an unfaithful woman, meaning the church. That was a very common theme, that Jesus is the husband and the church is the woman. So seeing that pattern repeated itself, let's use that pattern to understand what is being said in chapter 11, at least for us in our day, that I, in this sense, am the woman. And I would suggest that sometimes I am Adam and sometimes I am Eve. And I need to see that sometimes Eve represents the church and Adam represents Christ. Or perhaps Adam might represent the head of the church, which is the prophet at the time, and the woman represents the body of the church, which is the membership. So I think Paul sets this up in verse 1 where he says, Be ye followers of me, an apostle, even as I am of Christ. The keys went from Christ to the apostle and from the apostle to the body of the church. So then trying to illustrate that, I think he's playing on the imagery of the woman being the church and Christ being the man. Read it that way, and it opens up some powerful messages. Verse 3, but I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man. Again, I do not see in that, at least in our day, a commentary that men are more important than women. What he's saying is that Christ takes his bearings from God. Christ yields to God and gets his instructions from God. Or we could look at it like Christ, Christ's representative on earth, the prophet, yields to the Savior, not to public opinion. The prophet should not get his bearings on what to do in the church from the world and the people around him. He shouldn't yield to others. He should yield to Christ. But the woman who represents the church should yield to the prophet and the keys that he holds as a symbol of yielding to Christ. That's what I think Paul is trying to say. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. I think that's a commentary on the key holders, that if Christ and his representative on earth are yielding to popular and public opinion, you are dishonoring who should be your head, which is God. But every woman, meaning the church, that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered, meaning she is not yielding, she's not covered by the atonement, dishonoreth her head. For that is even as one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. I think that's a play on our culture. In general, and I know there's exceptions, so don't push this too far, but in general, women don't want to be bald. They don't like losing their hair. 
It's kind of a reproach in many cultures for a woman to not have hair. And what Paul's trying to say is the church that is not covered by the atonement is like a bald woman in some cultures, that we ought to be more particularly concerned about not being covered by the atonement. The man represents Christ and the woman represents the church, and a beautiful image of the church is a veiled woman. She is yielding to Christ, and Christ, the husband, says that I will cover you. That veil is a symbol of the covering of protection that Christ gives his bride. So I find great symbolism in these little chapters about that I am the woman and I shouldn't take off my covering. If I'm going to take off the covering of the atonement and live my life my way, I might as well be in that society where it would be a shame to be bald. So as you read that, again, don't take that into a male-female situation. Take it into a symbolism. That's why I love verse 11. I think Paul is trying to say this isn't a male-female thing as much as it's a symbolic thing where he says, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man. That's the male-female issue. They stand side by side. They are equals in God's kingdom. But in the symbolism of Christ being the husband, we, the church, must yield to him in order to be protected by him. That's good. Before we leave 1 Corinthians 11, I do want to talk about some of the ideas that were swirling around in the first century amongst Second Temple Jews, because a Second Temple Jew had a certain concept of things that maybe we think about differently. And so one of the things he's going to say, look in verse 14, Paul says, does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, that it's a shame unto him. So he's not just talking about the women here. He's also talking about the men. Uh, it's this idea of nature itself, like the way things really are. This is coming from his understanding of how the world works. Nature itself is testifying of this. He says in the next verse, after the nature itself argument, verse 15, he says, if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Okay, so he's talking about men in verse 14. He's talking about women in verse 15. And then look in verse 10. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. So... Another reason for his justification or reasoning for women needing to have their head covered comes from verse 10, because of the angels. Now, Paul's assumption is that his readers understand this stuff. And as modern readers in in our time period, we read this and say, I don't know what you're talking about, Paul. So to be brief in speaking, Paul is talking about adult matters of procreation, and he's talking about modesty, and he's also talking about Genesis 6, verses 1 through 4. There was this rebellion in heaven, and there were these 
angels that became watchers that rebelled against God and they came to earth and they procreated with women and they created a race of giants or the Nephilim as it's termed in the the text. They understood that the fallen angels of Genesis 6 are a big reason why evil exists in the world and that that was tied into matters of procreation. And that argument is often not talked about in Latter-day Saint circles, but it was in Paul's day. So that's the justification for all this stuff in 1 Corinthians 11. And Paul's understanding and the way he reads this is that this is tied into women having their head covered, and it's also tied into the idea that men should not have long hair. And a lot of this has to do with his understanding of how procreation worked. Now, we are not going to get any more detailed in this podcast than that. But if you're interested and you're someone who wants to get into the terminology, there's all this medical terminology swirling around in Paul's day as the people that studied medicine, they write about this. And there's a podcast done by Dr. Michael Heiser, and we'll link it in the show notes for you. The title of the podcast is called The Head Covering of 1 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15. There's also a transcript. So if you don't want to listen to it, you can read it. Or if you don't want to read it, you can listen to it. And you can get into those details. But I will say that that podcast is definitely for older audiences as it deals with sensitive matters, matters associated with procreation. And it's one of those podcasts that really gets into the weeds. And so we're Bryce and I have decided we're just going to keep this on a general level But Paul isn't coming up with these arguments out of thin air. There's literature on this during his time. Second Temple Jews understood things differently. A lot of times we talk about the reason why evil came to be. As Christians, we cite the fall. Now, Latter-day Saints and Christians have a slight distinction there. Christians look at the fall as a bad thing. Latter-day Saints, because we have Lehi's commentary, understand that the fall was actually intended. It was actually good. We need to know this. But as a Second Temple Jew, someone who lived during the Second Temple period, they also saw the origins of evil as coming out of Genesis 6. They understood that the fallen angels of Genesis 6 are a big reason why evil exists in the world and that that was tied into matters of procreation. So that's the justification for all this stuff in 1 Corinthians 11. So when I teach it, I just love using the chapter heading. Paul speaks of certain customs of hair and grooming. And I just leave it at that. And then if people have questions, depending on the level of student and the questions they have, I kind of go further down the road. But if they don't have questions and they're like, oh, great, customs of hair and grooming, I say, let's move along. Let's talk about the sacrament. And then we move along. So now after 1 Corinthians 11, Paul gets into this discussion on spiritual gifts, which are discussed in other places in the scriptures. And spiritual gifts to Paul are a big deal. And they should be a big deal to us. Doctrine and Covenant section 46 has a lot to say about gifts of the Spirit. Here we find it in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We also find it in the Book of Mormon, the final chapter of the Book of Mormon. Moroni writes about the gifts of the Spirit. So allow us to put all those together. We're going to pull the best of Doctrine and Covenants 46, Moroni 10, and 1 Corinthians 12. And again, you know me, I like lists. I'm going to make a list of truths relative to gifts of the Spirit. You have a gift. Every one of you have at least one gift given to you by heaven, an ability that you have that is unique among Heavenly Father's children. And you owe it to the church to develop and bless all of our lives with that gift. 
So let's see if we can make a list about truths relative to the gifts of the Spirit. The first thing I want to point out that in every one of the three sections, we are asked to seek them. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 1, he says, desire spiritual gifts. In Moroni chapter 10, Moroni says, lay hold upon every good gift. And then in Doctrine and Covenants section 46, it says, seek ye earnest the best gifts. Seek them, desire them, lay hold upon them. Paul even says, covet them. In a righteous way, covet them. Gifts are to be sought. If you have a gift, great, but you can seek other gifts. Number two, I think this is an important doctrine. Your gift was not given to you. Your gift was given to us through you. And that's an attitude that we all need to have. In Doctrine and Covenants 46 verse 9, he says, Verily I say unto you that they are given for the benefit of those who love me, later on, that all may be benefited. Your gift is to benefit all of us. End of verse 10 in section 46, they are given unto the church. End of verse 12, that all may be profited. That's a mindset I must have, that my gift is not to bring me glory and to make me proud. My gift is to bless the church. That's why I was given to it. The Lord cautioned Joseph Smith. Remember when he used his gift and then ended up losing the scriptures? After the loss of the manuscript, the Lord says, For although a man may have many revelations, that's a gift, and have power to do many mighty works, that's another gift, yet if he boasts in his own strength and sets at naught the counsels of God and follows after the dictates of his own will and carnal desires, he must fall and incur the vengeance of a just God upon him. Make sure that you are seeking to bless the church with the gift that you have. Now, one thing that is repeated again in all of them is that there are many, many gifts, not just the 15 or so that are mentioned in the Scriptures. Doctrine and Covenants section 46 has a small little list. Paul mentions a small little list, but the reality is there are many, many, many gifts, millions of gifts. Elder Bruce R. McConkie said it this way, spiritual gifts are endless in number and infinite in variety. Those listed in the revealed word are simply illustrations of the boundless outpouring of divine grace that a gracious God gives those who love and serve him. I love one time Elder Marvin J. Ashton gave a talk called There Are Many Gifts, and his idea was that he just simply identified the gifts that he saw illustrated in Third Nephi and the latter part of the Book of Mormon. Just in a few books of Scripture, he says, here's the gifts that I see, and he gave this incredible list. Let me just mention a few just to get you thinking. He says, let us review some of these less conspicuous gifts. Now listen to this list, the gift of asking, the gift of listening, the gift of hearing and using a still small voice, the gift of being able to weep, the gift of avoiding contention, the gift of being agreeable, the gift of avoiding vain repetition, the gift of seeking that which is righteous, the gift of not passing judgment, 
the gift of looking to God for guidance, the gift of being a disciple, the gift of caring for others, the gift of being able to ponder, the gift of offering prayer, the gift of bearing a mighty testimony, the gift of receiving the Holy Ghost. Will you look for your gift? Would you see them in other people? My wife has the gift of healing through listening. It's incredible to watch people will just start a conversation with her, and then all of a sudden they're pouring out their soul to my wife, and when they're done, they feel better. They're, they're like, it's like they're healed because they shared something with my wife. It's like she has the gift of healing through listening. But there are so many gifts. Not only are there many gifts, but I love what Moroni says in chapter 10, verse 8. He says, there are different ways that these gifts are administered, but it is the same God that worketh in them. In other words, maybe one person's administration of the gift of tongues is to speak another language that they don't speak. Maybe another administration is to learn quickly a language you've been assigned to learn. Maybe another one is to speak your own language very eloquently, all the same gift, but manifested in different ways. Now, let's go to the Doctrine and Covenants for this one, because I need, I think we all need to hear this one. Doctrine and Covenants section 46 again, verse 10. Verily, I say unto you, I would that ye should always remember and always retain in your minds what those gifts are that are given unto the church. For all have not every gift given unto them, for there are many gifts, and to every man is given a gift by the Spirit of God. I am intrigued that it says every man, not every member. Is it possible that every one of Heavenly Father's children was given a gift by Him? Is it possible that what brought about the Declaration of Independence and this country was that God gave spiritual gifts to our founding fathers and our founding mothers? Is it possible that the Reformers were given gifts? Is it possible that God has given all of His children a gift to bless His children? They certainly have been given to members of the church. You have been given a divine gift. Now, we must develop them. Just two scriptures that I think are worth mentioning. To Oliver Cowdery, the Lord said the following. Section 8, verse 4, he says, Thou hast a gift, apply unto it. Then to Hiram Smith in section 11, verse 10, thou hast a gift, or thou shalt have a gift, if thou wilt desire of me in faith. So perhaps some gifts aren't naturally manifested, but must be sought and encouraged and moved forward and advanced and desired. Gifts need to be developed. Now, let's turn to 1 Corinthians, because this is where Paul really shines in teaching the next couple of principles. The one I want to emphasize is that every gift is needed. And that's 1 Corinthians chapter 12. This is where we all turn. Paul says, as the body is one and hath many members, all the members of that one body, being many, are one body. Then he jumps on to say, 
If the whole were an eye, where were the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where were the smelling? Later, he says, the eye cannot see to the hand, I have no need of thee, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. Every gift is needed. Now, let's all admit some gifts are more recognizable than others. There's an eye gift and there's a hand gift, but there's also an ear gift and a foot gift. And the body can't say, I don't need feet to walk. I don't need ears to hear. Every gift is needed, even those quieter, more subtle gifts that sometimes go unappreciated. Every gift is needed. My next point is in verse 18. You have the gift that Heavenly Father wants you to have. Hear this verse. Now hath God, this is verse 18 of chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians. Now hath God set the members, every one of them, in the body as it hath pleased him. That phrase is so meaningful to me. As it hath pleased him. You have the gift he wants you to have. And what we shouldn't do is somehow feel bad that I don't have an eye gift that's very noticeable. You have the gift that he wants you to have. The eye cannot say unto the hand, I have no need of thee. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of thee. Nay, much more those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor. Our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. I think there are some Latter-day Saints whose gift is simply high-yield, low-maintenance gifts. They just produce great blessings for the church, but don't get a lot of attention. I think there are Helaman gifts where, you know, everyone knows Helaman, but I think there are Shiblon gifts. And Shiblon was just as valuable to the kingdom, even though less noticeable. No less serviceable. No less serviceable. And so my plea to all of you is that you examine your soul and that you find the gift that God has given you. Maybe ask your spouse or your parents or your children, what is it that I do that is a blessing to the kingdom? What is my natural ability? We ought to talk more about these things. We ought to share with each other, and we ought to seek these gifts and then put ourselves in a position to bless the church with them. I'll put my list in the show notes if you want my full list with scriptures included so you can kind of see my thoughts on the what I have 11 little truths relative to the gifts of the Spirit. But the last one becomes a major point for Paul, and that is that one gift is most important. I wanted to address this separately. I don't want this to necessarily be part of our discussion on gifts of the Spirit. But in our transition, one gift is more important than all the other gifts. Now, some people are given it naturally. The rest of us have to seek it and develop it and pray for it. But that gift that is most important is the subject of chapter 13. 
And that gift is charity. Paul will say, though I have the gift of prophecy, that's a marvelous gift, and understand all mysteries, that's a marvelous gift, and all knowledge, that's a marvelous gift, and though I have all faith, that's a marvelous gift, so that I could remove mountains and have not charity, I am nothing. Because someday every gift will end. When we all speak one common language and we all know all languages, we won't necessarily need the gift of tongues. When we all know all things, we won't need the gift of knowledge. When we're healed of all earthly infirmity, we won't maybe need the gift of healing like we have in the past. But there will never ever be a moment in all of eternity where we don't need the gift of charity. So if you're going to seek a gift, let it be the gift of charity. Now, that being said, let's now talk about charity. Not so much as a gift of the Spirit, but charity as the culminating attribute of our Heavenly Father and those who want to enter His presence. The pursuit of charity is the pursuit of getting into Heavenly Father's presence. I really do see the quest for charity as coming into God's presence, becoming more like God. We see this in the Doctrine and Covenants where the Lord talks about that we can receive grace or charis, that word means gift, and as we receive it, we give it. We give gifts as we receive it from God, and we also reciprocate those gifts. We give charis back to God. He gives us a gift, and then we give him a gift, and the idea is that in so doing, we become like the gift giver, and we eventually become like God. We become more and more holy, more and more full of grace, and we approach God, and we become more like him. I see 1 Corinthians 13 in that setting, is that we receive agape, love, or charity as it's called. The, the translators came up with this word to really draw that distinction Okay, it's love, but it's not quite the normal love that we think of. This is a higher love. This is a love or an attribute that, look what it says in verse 4 of chapter 13. This is a love that suffereth long. Agape is kind. Charity or agape envieth not. It vaunteth not itself and is not puffed up. It does not behave itself unseemly. It doesn't seek her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth. Verse 8, agape, charity, never faileth. That is what Paul is trying to emphasize, and we want to become like the gift giver. We want to become like Jesus. Now, when Bryce and I talked about Moroni 7, we talked about this quest for charity in a ritual context. I believe this is completely connected to the temple. And so go back and listen to what we talked about when we talked about Moroni chapter 7. But to be short in speaking, Moroni is talking about coming into God's presence. The entire chapter is 
drenched with temple imagery in a ritual setting and passing the bitter fountain, coming to the good fountain, understanding gifts, rejecting the devil and his angels. That's Moroni 7.17. So you're passing those guys. You're laying hold on every good thing. That's Moroni 7.20 and 21. Think of the iron rod. We're approaching the tree. But when you lay hold on every good thing, you, you are seizing it. A good image for that is grasping the iron rod or grasping the hands of Jesus. And as we do this, we lay hold on every good thing. We cleave unto them. And then we come unto God. Look what it says. In Moroni 7 verse 40, it's talking about hope in verses 40 through 44. And then it talks about faith. And then finally, it talks about charity. Verse 45, charity suffereth long and is kind, envieth not and is not puffed up. Very similar to Paul's language. My belief is that Paul is quoting something really old as is Moroni. I think this is a very old discourse that is rooted in first temple Israelite religion. That's just what I believe. That's how I view it. And so because of that, notice what happens. We cleave unto charity. Verse 48 of Moroni 7, wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that ye may be filled with this love, which he has bestowed upon all who are true followers of his son, Jesus Christ, that we may become the sons of God, that when he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is, that we may have this hope that we may be purified even as he is pure. This is a ritual. This is coming into God's presence. We are crossing into a different space in the terminology of the Bible. We are going through the veil into the Holy of Holies as the high priest did. And like Isaiah in Isaiah 6, we now see the Lord. We see him as he is. Now look what Paul says. He says in verse 9, We know in part and we prophesy in part. Now, I kind of get into the translation of that in the show notes, but I'm just going to say this. I think it could be read a couple ways, but we know in portion and we prophesy according to portion. In other words, as Christians in in that time period in the first century, they have a piece of it, but they don't have all of it. I'm just going to say it that way. Verse 10, he says, but when that which is perfect has come, then that which is in part shall be done away. So we're, we're going to go into a higher level. We're stepping up our game when it comes to faith and prophesying and being someone with gifts. We are going into a perfect state, and that which is perfect has come is Jesus. Verse 11, when I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, and I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. That is a change in relationship. Now we're talking about becoming sons and daughters of Christ. Ritually, we've taken upon ourselves his name, and we are going through into God's presence. Verse 12, For now we see through a glass darkly, and that word is mirror in the Greek. But I just want to suggest to you that that word glass or mirror can be seen as the veil. We see through something darkly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know even as also I am known. That is DNC 76 verse 94, that when we become celestial, We see as we are seen and know as we are known. This is what Moroni is talking about. Moroni says the same idea. Look what he says in Moroni 7.48. When he shall appear, we shall be like him, for we shall see him 
as he is. And by implication, he shall see us as we are. We are now celestial beings. And so what does he say? He says, and now abideth faith, hope, charity, these three, but the greatest is charity. So in Paul's writing, the way I'm reading Paul is Paul is saying, as we live this mortal existence, we strive, we pray for, we hope for this love, this, as it's called in the English, this charity, this kind of love where we see people as they are. And as we do, we become like the master because he does not see through a glass darkly. He sees us as we are. And our quest is to know who he is and see him for who he is and to see ourselves as we really are and to see our brothers and sisters as they are. And when we do those three things, we are like Jesus. And this is Paul's invitation to us. So going back to seeking those gifts, and this is the most important gift to seek, we leave you this week with the words of Mormon to his son Moroni on how to get the gift of charity. And this then, the Savior's plea, seems to be, of all the things to seek, this is the one to seek, and this is how you do it. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, I'm reading from Moroni 7:48. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, pray unto the Father with all the energy of heart that you may be filled with that love. That's number one. You've got to ask for it. You've got to want it. And pray with all the energy of your heart that he bless you with the gift of charity. And then number two, Moroni Mormon continues which he hath bestowed upon all those who are true followers of his son, Jesus Christ. So go out and act like Jesus. And in acting like Jesus, he will gradually bestow upon you the gift of charity. As you strive to be more like the Savior, he will bless you with the ability to love like he loves. That is our witness. May you seek and receive the gift of charity. And with that, we thank you for your time. We will see you next week when we cover 1 Corinthians 14 through 16. Make it a great week. Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.